We're speaking with Andrew Vax. He's an author, an attorney specializing matters concerning children. His new novel is Two Trains Running. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Andrew, I'd like to start with you telling us about your work as a field investigator for the U.S. Public Health Service and how that led to your writing career and also your career as an attorney specializing in matters concerning children. I was part of the, you know, sort of uh, overwhelmingly named task force on the eradication of syphilis, but I didn't have any academic role or any laboratory role. I was a field investigator. What that means is somebody comes into a clinic with syphilis. It's my job to convince that person to disclose to me all their sexual contacts within the critical period within which they may have acquired syphilis. Depending on the stage of syphilis, that could be anywhere from 90 days to a year. Once I got full disclosure, I then had to find each of the people disclosed. They all had to be tested. Everyone that tested positive, I had to repeat the process. It was always a race against time. You're trying to break a chain of syphilitic infection. Since it could be passed no other way except by sexual contact or through a baby being born to a mother with syphilis, thus being born with congenital syphilis, you were always racing against the clock. We had the cure. The cure was a finger snap. Literally, you could walk into a clinic with syphilis and walk out without it. However, untreated syphilis had the most horrific possible consequences. Back then, and we're talking literally, as I sit here, probably 40 years ago, people were not so quick to disclose a homosexual relationship, an adulterous relationship, an interracial relationship. Advanced techniques were required at both ends, not just to get people to talk, but to find who they talked about. It was not atypical for a person to tell me, yeah, all I can tell you is that she was a prostitute, and I think her name was Mary, and this is the bar where she picked me up in. I had to go to that bar, I had to find Mary, and I had to talk Mary into talking with me. And if the dice rolled bad, and Mary, who was a prostitute, tested positive, and Mary was not uh, an escort with a trick book. Mary was turning $5 tricks in an alley behind the bar. You had a lot of work to do. Now, when you're doing that kind of work, you can't take notes. You can't carry a tape recorder. You have to be a very, very good listener. I learned to listen really well, get back to my room at night, and write like a madman so everything was recorded. So I fell into the habit very early of keeping journals. And I might have probably stayed with that job forever, just been an investigator because I was extremely good at it and well thought of. But too many of these chains of infection kept ending with children. I thought prior to taking this job, like a lot of kids that grew up in New York, you know, I'd seen everything. And I knew about so-called child molesters, and I knew about guys that hung around playgrounds. But I never imagined people, people sexually assaulting their own children. And the proof that I had was not some social worker's report, not some third-hand dialogue. I had a positive test for syphilis in the child and a positive test for syphilis in the adult and no other access to the child. I mean, over and over again. Eventually, it just overwhelmed me, and I got filled with a, with a hatred for the humans who prey on children 
that has sustained me to this day and through all the jobs that followed. One after another, job after job, was an attempt to get closer to really direct confrontation with the beast. Finally, after many, many years, I found a way to do that. And what is that way? Well, now I exclusively represent children as an attorney, so it's direct combat. I'm representing the victim. I'm acting against the perpetrator. It doesn't get any purer than that. Could you tell us a little bit about how this feels for you? How did you develop this hatred? Was it gradual? Well, it's built up over time. I don't know. I mean, the very first time a human being, and you notice I'm not saying a man or a woman, Mm -hmm. a human being not only raped his own infant and left the infant to die, while he went to the hospital to be treated for laceration to his genitals because he hadn't used Vaseline, a person like that makes you hate them. However, when I discovered that this person was not unique, he wasn't Satan, he wasn't some special zombie, he was representative of humans who do this to their own children and to other people's children, I immediately hated him. But I left that job and became a caseworker with New York City's infamous Department of Welfare, and I found more such humans to hate. And then I was in Biafra in a war that you're not old enough to remember, but if you want an update, you just look at Rwanda, and if you want a today's update, look at Uganda or the Congo. Genocidal tribalism, a million people slaughtered, most of them children, the major weapon being starvation, and the principal aid to the starvation, the rest of the world looking elsewhere and not caring. When I got back, I ended up running a maximum security prison for aggressive, violent youth. And it's there where I first made the real connection that we make our own monsters and we build our own beasts. There's no biogenetic misfire that gives us serial killers or arsonists who giggle at the flames. That's when I decided that all this hatred I'd built up could be focused someplace. And instead of trying to work for an organization, because being fired and being suspended was sort of part of my resume, instead of trying to work for an organization that I would never control, I needed to be in business for myself. And that's when I decided to go to law school and to represent children. Tell us a little bit about how you managed to convince people the people you worked with, of the reality of the things that you were describing, did they believe you when you, when you said this? I never this? had a problem with people I worked with. Okay. It's always outsiders. Ask, I mean, anybody in your audience who's a cop or a social worker or a prosecuting attorney or a pediatrician or even worked in an ER, I mean, every, they all know. I never had a problem convincing a co-worker of what was being done to children. Hell, you could show them. The, the, the literally bloody evidence, if that's what they wanted to see. No, the problem is not convincing people anymore. I, I could not meet a person today who said, oh, my goodness, I didn't know there was child abuse running around in America. I would be confronting either an abject moron or a liar. There's, there's nobody who doesn't know that today. 30 years ago, sure, consciousness raising was a viable thing to engage in, but we're way, way past that now. Where are we now? What can we, how do we move to protect these children? You've created a pack called Protect. I didn't create it. Oh, you uh, didn't? I'm a member of it. It was created by a coalition of people 
Protect, which is easy to find on the web, protect.org. Take you one second. And for your listeners, they can dial right up to the California campaign. Now, what's the California campaign? Well, California has a strange set of laws about sex offenders. Specifically, if you sexually assault a child in California, you're going to prison. You're not eligible for probation. Unless it happens to be your own child. There, California cuts you a special break called the incest loophole. If you have the good taste to grow your own victim, you can get probation in California. Now, there's a bill called Senate Bill 33. I see your mouth dropping open in shock. A bill called Senate Bill 33, which would close the incest loophole. If anybody cares at all, they'll go to protect.org and they'll look up with great interest Who's opposing this bill? And they'll act accordingly. Can you tell us a little bit? Who, who could possibly oppose such a loophole? You're not really asking me who could. You're asking me why. And the answer is I'm damned if I know. I have suspicions, none of which I'm going to articulate because they're just my suspicions. I want not to feed your listeners uh, you know, some recipe that they're supposed to swallow whole. Go to the website. Look up the people opposing the bill. Ask them. I think you will be stunned at the answers. That's really amazing. I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you thought about the current proliferation of online pedophile databases, whereby people can look up the address of the pedophiles in their neighborhood. Well, first of all, they're not looking up pedophiles. They're looking up sex offenders. Sex offenders, okay. Uh, Pedophilia is a state of mind. A person who obsessively thinks or fantasizes about sex with children who's preoccupied with such intrusive thoughts can legitimately be called a pedophile. A person who acts on those thoughts is a predatory pedophile. There's a vast, vast difference. I'll concede that we'll never have and never should have in America thought police. So I don't believe anybody's looking at pedophiles. We don't have any registry of how people think. You have registries of what people have done. Okay. Okay. So what do I think of them? I don't care about them one way or the other. They're they're certainly not interdicting any crime. I understand it's people's hobbies to go look this stuff up. I don't see where it's altered anything. You don't think it's helpful to help people, say, as protect their children? How? See, to me, that's politicians' rhetoric because these registries don't cost anything doesn't take any effort, and you can say, oh, we've protected the children. How? Normally, you'd let your kids be babysat by a stranger? I mean, if there was no internet, you'd take your kids across the street and say, go play with that man we've never met before? No. I, are no. you serious? Certainly not. So tell me how it's protecting anybody. I guess you're And correct. what is it, only protect people with internet access? So people who don't have an online connection, they're not safe? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm asking you. <laughs> well, I'm saying that I don't think these things do a damn thing. Uh, I'll tell you, if, they, if you want to have a registry that would count, then you have a national registry, not a local registry. And you have it as a requirement that nobody can have a job of any kind, public, private, or volunteer, without being screened through this registry. And if any public, private, or volunteer organization hires somebody without doing the screening, and that human being hurts a child, then the agency would be strictly liable. Then you'd have a beneficial registry. 
It's not incredible. It's something that could be done. It's something, mm-hmm. it's legislation. I assume you haven't read Bill Clinton's book, but if you, if you read Bill Clinton's book and you look up my name in the index, you'll see the specific legislation called the National Child Protection Act of 1993, which would have done all of this. And it was passed. Only problem is it hasn't been funded. It hasn't been funded no, yet. So. It's just, it's, what do you mean yet? It's not, with the Bush administration, this is not going to be funded. You can just forget that. I want to talk to you about language. This is something I've seen some of your articles about, and I think you have some very interesting ideas about language. Tell us how language shields pedophiles, child rapists. Well, it, it, first of all, it shields them when they're described as you describe them. So when you describe, when you say people are pedophiles, pedophile means lover of children. Pedophile can mean a social attitude. It can mean a mindset. It's not conduct. Most of the language involving attacks on children are euphemisms. So people, uh, a headline will say, man fondles boy. What does that mean? I mean, did he grope the child's genitals? Did he digitally penetrated the child? But we're calling it fondling. Or we call something like uh, that Michael Jackson was just accused of child molestation. There's no specific to that. But it gets far worse. A term that's used constantly is child prostitute. When, in fact, not only is there no such thing, but it trivializes what's actually being done to these children, and it guarantees in juries' minds that people who, quote, patronize child prostitutes will be thought of as Johns instead of as child rapists. Prostitution means you willingly, knowingly, intelligently traffic your body in exchange for money. These aren't child prostitutes. These are prostituted children. We say they're not old enough to sign a contract. Hell, they're not old enough to consent to sex. But we quickly label them prostitutes when they're forced into a life that trades sex for money. We're speaking with Andrew Vax. He's an author, an attorney, specializing matters concerning children. His new novel is Two Trains Running. So these are child slaves. Well, it is certainly a form of slavery when you're forced to perform sex acts to benefit another person against your will. But in the mindset of Americans, for example, we say incest is a nonviolent crime because a gun's not held to the child's head, child's not beaten with blunt objects or tortured, but incest is raped by extortion. If the person who controls the food you eat, the air you breathe, the place you sleep, controls the clothes you wear, every aspect of your life tells you to do something, and you do it, that makes it nonviolent? This is all a bunch of euphemisms. It's always been a bunch of euphemisms. This country goes berserk about amber alerts when a child is kidnapped by someone who jumps out of a van wearing a ski mask. But the children who are raped, sodomized, beaten, tortured in their homes every day are by and large ignored. And when the child moves outside still within the family circle of trust, we euphemize it further. So if a teacher has sex with a student, the newspapers call it an affair. I I live with violence all the time, and I am contemptuous of people who trivialize violence committed against others. And we're a very, very self-absorbed country where 
your headache is more important than somebody else's life or death. And I understand that. But most of the way that we look upon child abuse is at a great, great distance. Something other people do happens to other people. The Bush administration is screaming and yelling and beating its chest about trafficking as if children are not trafficked right within our own borders. I'd like to talk to you about how you go from your work defending children to your fiction, the Burke novels, and also eventually we want to get to Two Trains Running, which is a different matter entirely. Let's talk a little bit about how do you go about creating the Burke novels? They're written in the first person. Well, I don't know how I go about creating them. Uh, Burke is the prototypical abused child. He's hypervigilant. He's distrustful. He's marked indelibly by his life experiences. He hates the state, which he considers to be his parent. And he's bonded far deeper than blood could ever be bond with his family of choice the family that he chose and the family that chose him. They're not connected by DNA in any way. They're connected by their conduct. So he represents all of that. Hence the novels are first person. As you write these novels, do you develop them out of an outline or do you write them just straight from the cuff from beginning to end, straight through? Neither one. I I write the novel very carefully constructed in my head. And when it's all done, I, I'm less of a writer than I am a transcriber at that point. So you just you create the novel entirely in your head and then just sit down and transcribe it? Pretty much, that's correct. I mean, I have a plot to work with because I attack a different theme with each book mm-hmm. that, that I've thought through. So I know what I want to say. I know how I want to say it. I've already got the vehicle in hand. So yeah, that's pretty much the way I do it. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your prose style. It has two potential predecessors, the prose of your mystery predecessors and the language of the streets of the people that you listen to. Which speaks most strongly to you when you write? You're making assumptions that I don't agree with. So, okay. So well, I, I, don't, I don't know of any um, historical influences on what I write and uh, kind of reject this generic you know, Chandler clone crap. I, I don't think it applies to me, certainly. I don't, I don't see any connection at all. Uh, that was not, in my view, participant-observer literature. It was observer from a great distance using first-person narrative. My stuff is ground zero, and it's influenced totally by what I do, what I've done. I don't have to research my books. Nor, sadly, do I have to make anything up. You live your books. I didn't say that. I live the material that's reflected in the books. I'm not a career criminal or a card-carrying felon (laughs) or any of the other things that appear with great regularity in the books. But the material is all based on either what I've seen, what I've done, what I've heard, like that. One of the things that strikes me about your newest novel, Two Trains Running, is the dialogue. Most dialogue seems to be written to be read. This sounds like somebody dropped a tape recorder in each of the places. Is this how you... That's exactly what I wanted. 
exactly what I wanted, what I wanted to do, because this is an almost 500-page book that takes place within two weeks, and it never stops. Instead of using the typical third person, which to me is just loaded with this leaden exposition and these magical tricks where you know what everybody's thinking and you know everybody's backstory, here it's a series of surveillance opportunities. You get to listen and you get to watch. You must draw your own conclusions from that. I don't tell you who the good guys and the bad guys are. I don't tell you who you want to win. I don't tell you how it's going to come out. You have to watch, look, listen, and decide for yourself. It makes it for a really exciting read. I found I could hardly stop reading it because it was so much fun as a reader and challenging to put together the pieces that you did a great job of laying out each part of dialogue so that you find yourself being constantly shocked when you found people who knew one another that you didn't expect to know one another. Well, you said the magic word, because I am not going to duck the fact that the book is challenging. There's two ways to read this book. In fact, it's been reviewed two ways. You know, it's your, you know, Dashiell Hammett-like, fast-paced crime novel, you know, hitman goes to a town in turmoil kind of thing. And some people read it that way. But there's a real undercurrent to that river, no matter how fast the river's moving. And people who make that investment, I believe, will be far better rewarded. Well, let's ratchet back a little bit and talk about where this novel starts. It's set in Lock City. Mm -hmm. There is no Lock City, though, is there? Well, there's always a Lock City. I mean, if you know anything about border towns, there's always a Lock City. And Lock City is a play on words. When something's a mortal lock, in in my culture, it means it's a guarantee. So Mm -hmm. if a horse is a mortal lock to win, you know, it's a sure thing. When you say something's Lock City, you mean it's all sewn up, and that town certainly is. Okay, so we're in a border town. Mm -hmm. It's 1959. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the people who run the town, the Beaumonts. They're a fascinating uh, couple. It's beautifully written, and one of the things I found about this novel is that you create an entire cast of characters, none of whom strike one as good or or evil. Right. They're just all very compelling characters to read, so it doesn't matter who you're reading about, whose point of view you're seeing. It's all fascinating. That's what I'm intended. This cover is black and white because inside is nothing but shades of gray. Everybody gets to make a choice. I literally have had readers respond to the same book radically different. I mean, they want a certain constituency to prevail in the book, and other readers... I'm not rooting for those guys. That's fine. That That is my intent. The Beaumonts are people who took the town by force. And they've held it against all comers ever since. They are a deeply bonded family, yet not in a traditional way. They are referred to by others as hillbillies. They refer to themselves as mountain men, as a point of pride. But they're not Italian mafia or Jewish organized crime, or the IRA. These are people who come together out of shared need, and as it turns out, shared values. I don't mean they're heroic. I don't mean they're necessarily good human beings. But Beaumont himself is a smart vice lord. He runs a town that's not distinguished by the fact that you can get anything there, but you can get anything there safely. So if you bet a roulette wheel in Beaumont's casinos... That wheel is not rigged. 
If you visit a whorehouse in Beaumont's town, you're going to emerge from that whorehouse with your wallet still intact. That's what he's made his reputation on. And as the book begins, various factions are fighting for control over this rich prize. But the prize isn't just the income that the town generates at all levels. The real prize is the votes it can deliver because it's a sewed-up town. And there will be more votes for the candidate chosen than there will be people in that town. Therefore, there's a lot of people in 1959 who want it very badly. Yes. The, one of the backdrops of this book is, of course, massive voter fraud, the night of the voting dead back in 1959. I wanted to ask you about the modern-day parallels. The modern-day parallels to this book are total. They're just absolutely total, If and I can prove it. Clearly, I didn't write this book last week. Right. I, I wrote it some time ago, just during the publishing process. It takes that time. So how did I know they were going to dig up Medgar Evers, uh, Medgar Evers, Emmett Till's body? Tell us how you knew. I didn't. How did I know that all of a sudden they were going to prosecute the murderers of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman? I was just convicted a couple of weeks ago. How did I know that? My reference to Medgar Evers before was to his widow and to the fact that many people believe that the guy who was sentenced for killing Medgar Evers wasn't the only one involved. There are civil rights-era prosecutions happening all over the country right now, and they only have one thing in common. Somebody opened FBI files, and that I did know, and that's one of the drive forces of the book. Just as book reviewers in the past have read truth that I write, but because of their very narrow, cloistered, limited life experience, decided it was fantasy, when I write in this book about the FBI having, quote, assets, unquote, paid informants literally riding in clan death cars, people are going to say, oh, he's made that up. I have not. When people are done with this book, I will be best rewarded if they are questioners, if they say, okay, there's a lot of things this guy said in this book. Some I know to be true. Some I've subsequently found out by doing a little research are true. The others are kind of speculative. I wonder if they're true or not. Let me take a look. If that happens, I'm a winner. This is something I wanted to get to, what you call speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. What we have here is the idea that the winners are writing history. The person who controls the narration really controls our vision of our world and our experience of our world. If we're lazy, that's 100% correct. This book is my ode to journalism. It's my position that investigative journalism is really all that stands between us and the loss of democracy. But even the journalist in this book, who's the quote hero, unquote, is charitably an extremely flawed character. It's my position that people don't make the effort. They just don't make the effort. And they accept what they see and what they read. And I'm not talking about Da Vinci codes and conspiracy theories. Just the degree of unwillingness to do the work oneself. If you ask, I, and I do this all the time, I ask young people, name journalists they've heard of. They've heard of, um, oh, Stephen Glass. They've heard of Jason Blair. They've heard of people who besmirched journalism because they became famous as a result. For true journalists, they're on a pilgrimage, and there's only one God they're seeking, and that's truth. Chips fall where they may. 
that kind of truth-seeking is what I'm attempting to get people to do with this book. It's interesting that you say that journalism can save democracy when at this point in time, journalism seems to be doing all it can to trash it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm defining journalism before I said that. Okay, I don't consider somebody who whores themselves out for a paycheck and writes what they're told to write to be a journalist. I, I think they've you know, lost the title. A journalist seeks truth, period. I mean, that's my definition. If you're not seeking truth and then reporting it, you don't qualify as a journalist in my book. Now we have all these sort of um, modifiers that go along with journalists, like I'm an entertainment journalist. That doesn't mean you can't be truth seeker. So bottom line for me, the people you're talking about are not journalists. Tell us a little bit about the different spins on journalism we have nowadays the balanced journalism. I'd like to hear oh, your please. comments. There's no such <laughs> thing. No such. Pe- people tune into left-wing news or they turn into right-wing news or they turn into upbeat news, you know, or they turn into upper-class news. But in terms of just a news feed, like, uh, you know, like a battlefield body count feed. Raw data. We don't get that. Because to get raw data means, my God, you'd have to process it yourself. You'd have to analyze it yourself. You'd have to develop something more than a point of view. We've become so lazy that we demand that the point of view be presented for us. So there's certain newscasts that one can tune into, and you will get a, you know, pro-Bush, we should all be a theocracy, abortion is murder, news. And you can turn into other news that say, you know, this is a repressive regime and we shouldn't be in Iraq, news, off the same data. So people know with certain news programs, exactly what kind of spin they're going to get. And the people who make the loudest noise about never spinning anything, I think are the real entertainment journalists because they always make me laugh. Where do we find then the raw data? And given the amount of raw data that there is out there, Mm -hmm. how do you develop a filter to break out the facts that are matter that can help you make decisions that matter? Well, first of all, it requires work. And and that's enough to dissuade a huge portion of everybody listening to this. Uh, But the second thing is I'm not suggesting everybody go out and mine their raw data. I'm suggesting that people start evaluating journalists by the quality of their reporting, not by the mellifluousness of their writing, which is too often the way we evaluate journalism, never mind whether their hair is nice or things like that. There are journalists to get the job done. There are publications to get the job done. Name some. Uh, my favorite publication, if I, if I had to go get information, would be The Economist. I think, I think that's the closest thing to truly fair and balanced reporting that I've seen in print. I just plain like it. I think Carl Hyacinth's a great journalist. I think Bob Herbert's a great journalist. I think Nick Pileggi's a great journalist. We have, in this country, people who have a long track record of reporting the truth to us. And, you know, if it was... I don't know, some special bread or some exotic coffee or some natural fiber garment. People would shop like really, you know, vicious consumers. They'd check, they'd evaluate, they'd compare. But journalism, they seem to swallow like it's a generic pill. So how does crime fiction, which you're writing, play into journalism? How how you consider yourself a journalist, correct? I consider myself as a person that's reporting truth to you, and I think that History's vindicated me. When I first wrote about predatory pedophiles, modem trafficking, and kiddie porn, 
Book reviewers went berserk, saying, what kind of sick mind would make this stuff up? Now, why was that? Because it was in 1986. Well, if you wrote a plot today about predatory pedophiles, modem trafficking, kitty porn, people go, oh, ho, hum, who hasn't read that a thousand times? Now, I'm not saying I'm the first person to ever report this. I, you know, I don't have any ego like that, and I don't know. But I do know that when I began writing about what I write about, the reaction was not just shock and horror, but total disbelief. That's no longer the case. Two trains running. Let's talk about some of the undercurrents in this. Gambling, prostitution, drugs. Yeah, I don't see, I don't ever take the position myself uh, in this book. I don't take no position of any kind about nothing, never, in no, this book. No, it's just reported. Elsewhere, I do. I mean, clearly in the Burke series, you, you know what I'm thinking. I'm the one talking to you. But I don't, for example, myself consider prostitution to be a victimless crime, yet that's certainly the perception of those running the town in this book. Gambling clearly is just an example of, you know, sort of government game playing. How can gambling be immoral in, you know, a state that doesn't have enough Indians to form a casino and perfectly okay there? That's just, that's just plain nonsense. Prostitution is, in fact, legalized in some parts of Nevada. So we don't have this uniform mentality. But I'm going to tell you this. We're going to. The Bush administration has already served notice that all the old stories are being flipped on their backs. I'll give you an example. The Senate recently apologized for never passing a federal anti-lynching law. Years and years and years, anti-lynching legislation would be proposed in Congress and stopped and killed in the Senate. It was always killed by Senate filibuster. And what were they filibustering about? States' rights. That was the rallying cry of every segregationist in America. In Mississippi, we have the right to set our own standards. The feds have no business coming in here and telling us how we want to live, how our culture should be, right? Okay. Well, do you have medical marijuana in California? No. Why not? The people of the state of California voted to have it. The culture of California accepted it. Now, states' rights has been flipped 180 degrees. Now it's all about federal rights. Why is that? The same reason why filibustering is now bad. See, it's all about power. It has nothing to do about principle. So words that came out of people's mouths 50 years ago are Exactly reversed today, but they mean the same thing. I'd like you to comment on the recent revelation of Deep Throat as an FBI operative. It, I think it, it can't have come as a surprise to anybody, and I don't mean that the name was known to me. Mm -hmm. But it can't have come as a surprise to anybody that the FBI had the information. They've pretty much, if you, if you look at the history since Hoover, they've pretty much had the information because they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. One of the problems, of course, has been the quality of the information they have because when you rely on not developing your own personnel but on paying personnel that have been developed by others, the quality of the information might be considerably suspect. But nobody should have been surprised. I don't think that it was an FBI agent. Could you tell us a little bit about the figure of Walker Dett? I want to talk about him as a Ronin. Well, 
the idea of Walker dead as a Ronin is, I don't want to give away the plot of the book, but it's illusory. It's illusory. I mean, dead is, in fact, a hired assassin with advanced skills who's capable of conducting warfare campaigns. He's not, uh, you know, a hitman where he'll come and shoot somebody in the head and get paid. You bring in Walker Dead when you have trouble with a whole group of enemies. That's what he does, and that's what he's been doing, and that's what his reputation is. He's got his own reasons, which are revealed at the end of the book, but they're not like anything anybody would expect, at least from the reactions I've received so far. When people react to your books, I think there's a lot of reaction to the extreme violence or the extremes. I didn't find this book particularly violent. There, There's some stuff that happens, but not a lot. No, because the violence is committed by a clinician. Right. But it's still exciting as all get out by virtue of the way that you've constructed the surveillance tape technique. Could you tell, talk a little bit about substituting the action of revelation, the mystery is entirely on the surface. As you noted earlier, there's there's no introspection. There's no exposition. Uh, practically, in, the entire novel is dialogue. Talk us a little bit about creating that and the kind of editing you had to do on yourself to ratchet that back. Well, that's, the, the last question is the only one that, that I would have to sit and think about because I'm not sure how much ratcheting back I did. I've spent most of my life developing interviewing skills and being in places where people talk and being unobtrusive while doing it. You can't run a maximum security prison for violent youth, as I did, without being plugged into dialogue every single day that the average person looking at it would just be stunned. But by taking everything out of the frame, as you said, no exposition, no introspection, no backstory. I'm trying to put you in it so that instead of being this very detached observer, I want you, if I'm successful, for you to be virtually a player. I mean, that close to the point where you have different feelings about different characters that change as you see those characters not grow, not develop, but act. As it's revealed, that's right. what's happened in this book that is so makes it so exciting that characters are revealed slowly. At first, you'll see somebody, and you'll get a, a, a brief picture of them based on what their position in life. And But as the action evolves, you'll find out that there are relationships that you don't expect to exist. Exactly. Uh, t- to me, there's a, there's a real, real hardcore inside layer after layer after layer after layer. And as you go, you're peeling, but you're peeling off the layer. Yes. It's not being done for you. No, no, you have to experience it. And, and I have to admit that that makes a book, it's a challenging book to read. It's not easy. And a lot of times that I found myself getting lost. But one of the great pleasures is as you proceed further, it all starts to come together. I agree with you, and I'll, I'll be very blunt. If you're the type of person, I'm not going to mention any other writers, but if you like reading you know, your basic paperback crime novel where there's you know, a lot of shooting, a lot of stabbing, a lot of stomping, and you know, I guess a fair amount of sex, and at the end, the hero does all the right things and it's all tied up in a bowl, you're not going to like this book. It's going to be too much work for you. It's a very different form of mystery. What inspired you to, to take this tack? 
Because I had no other choice. I have been working on this book for many, many, many years. When I finally assembled everything I wanted to say, this, believe it or not, is the most economical, clean way to present it. If I'd presented it throwing in all the stuff we discussed, you're talking about a thousand-page book. So right. I just got real surgical on it. Did you have to? Did you find yourself editing out exposition, or no, did you no, never? I, it never I, went in. I made that vow and I kept it. I mean, once I saw how it would have turned out with all that other stuff in there, not only would it have been you know a humongous physical book, but I think it would have been a clunker. I think I would have put too much distance between the action and the readers because what you learn about character throughout this book is that you are what you do. And this is a theme for you, too, in general. This isn't just this novel. This is um, something that you feel... Is, behavior is the truth. Behavior is the truth. If, if you want me to know you, you have to show me conduct. Nothing you tell me will make you my friend. Nothing. Only what you show me. And I assume you'll feel the same way about me. And I mean that you, generically. Uh, in my world, conduct is everything. And conduct is what gives you character not the other way around. I don't give you a character and say, watch their conduct. I give you a conduct and say, okay, now you see what the character is. One of the things that this is as well, it's a novel of crime in a locale, and those have a history. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk about how crime fiction works when you pitch it in a certain locale, how you created this locale. Well, how I created a locale is easy. I mean, if you've worked in the border towns I've worked in. You ask anybody who's been well, in... Excuse me, tell, tell which border towns. I, I oh, I've worked in Steubenville, Ohio. I've worked in Whitton, West Virginia. I've worked in Covington, Kentucky. I've worked in Cal City, Indiana, Harvey, Illinois. I mean, I, I've worked in a lot of border towns. Now, this is on borders between states. Yes, and sometimes a sometimes, uh, border between more than one state. Okay. So you based Lock City and, and, on... And even better if there's a river. <laughs> okay. <laughs> even better if there's a river. If you want real, you know, real... Mix for corruption. So you've you've chosen a, a, a typical border town and, and created it. Uh, not just a border town, but a border town that was thriving prior to and during World War II and then died when the war machine stopped. There was no jobs. And the town reinvented itself as Sin City to survive. And the person who's currently running it took it from his predecessors by force and is now trying to hold it by force against all comers. The real prize for this town, however, isn't, isn't the money to be made on all the rackets. Yeah. It's the votes. It's the votes. And one of the things I find really fascinating about this book is I look back on the Kennedy presidency and I think, well, that was a good thing, mm -hmm. especially as compared with a potential Nixon presidency, which is what we were offered. Yet you've got this massive voter fraud, the night of the voting dead, for for Kennedy as as the predecessor for all that's followed. Yeah, well, let's be for real. You know, the people who were screaming and yelling about how Bush stole the election and, you know, the count wasn't right in Florida would have been cheering had it gone the other way. But this isn't so much about voter fraud. This is about delivering voters. There's a big difference. So, for example, there's a union involved. And it is the belief of all the participants that if you can get to that union leadership, you will have not only every union member's vote, but every union member's family's vote. It talks about the patronage system. 
so that if the wrong guy is elected, some people don't get to be judges and some people don't get to be parking attendants. Some people don't get to be street sweepers. People lose their livelihood. What they're expected to pay in exchange for their job is not just you know a little under the table to the boss. They're expected to vote and to get out the vote. At this stage in America, unions were vote-delivering machines, and, and that has changed. How has it changed? And one thing I'm very interested in is, will we see Walker debt following through those changes? That's something I, I'm... You know, huh. I, that's a question I don't have an honest answer for you. I, or I give, it's not that I have a dishonest answer. I have no answer. Um, and it's a question I didn't expect to be asked, and yet I've been asked a lot. So... To me, this seems the only answer is I don't know. To me, this seems very much like a setup for a series, and I'd love to see more. The trick is, I I kind of know what makes a successful series. I mean, I've got that well, credential. Certainly, I'm not sure. I've got to see how much work people are willing to put in to read the book, because the people who want it to be a series have been pretty, you know, vocal about that, and they've done the work. But I'd be Less than truthful if I didn't acknowledge that at our website, we get lots of mail, people saying, when's the next Burke? I mean, you know, I read this book and it was okay because I'm so loyal to you. I'll read anything you write, but I'm waiting for the next Burke. So the answer is, I don't know. I can tell you it took me so long to write this book that there would not, if there was ever going to be a sequel, it wouldn't be soon. Well, let's get back to the vote machines then. How has the vote machine changed and how can we use the tools, the point of view, the objectivity we develop by reading this book, by fishing through this dialogue and putting together this puzzle to help us put together the puzzle that we can see out of the facts of facts that come at us every second during the day? Well, at this point, I don't believe you need advanced analytic skills to do um, sort of a political judgment as to what's in your best interest as an American today. I, I, I just don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as unions are concerned, it's very clear that despite top-level labor support for John Kerry, rank-and-file union members did not turn out in the numbers and with family, friends, and people within sphere of influence numbers sufficient to tip an election. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. And, and uh, you got to remember, the early union-busting techniques didn't just consist of two-by-fours. One of them was racism. One of them was going to workers and saying, listen, do you really care most about wages and hours or not having to work next to a black person on the assembly line? Well, a lot of people chose option B. And that proved to be a very effective union-busting technique, too. Then there's also the problem where public perception of unions has changed. It's hard to see, you know, heroic rank-and-file struggle against big labor when rank-and-file are making, you know, sort of ridiculously inflated money. What's happening is American labor is going to hell because most of the giant corporations are paying out more in pensions than they are in salaries. So what they're doing is they're cutting down on services, they're cutting down on wages. You see airlines going bankrupt, but the guys who are retired are the ones getting the money. It's terrible planning, but instead of it bringing labor together, you now have the, you know, the people close to retirement feeling real differently than the ones just starting out. 
If you want to see that technique in action, look about this utterly bogus plan to invest some of our Social Security money. We want to give young people the option to put their money in the stock market. Now, of course, this isn't going to benefit stockbrokers or guys who run mutual funds. I mean, of course, that can't be the reason. But here's the question that nobody's asked. If we let everybody take their Social Security money and instead of paying it into a fund like we've been doing, invest it in the stock market, and the stock market tanks as it has, and they're all broke, what, are they going to all be on welfare? I mean, this doesn't seem to be an answer because George Bush, you know, intellectual that he is, seems to have figured things out to the point where if you invested money in the stock market and the stock market went up, you'd be better off. Gee, okay, I agree with that. Problem is that when you're planning to retire, if you're a 25-year-old guy now and you're planning to retire in 40 years, can you really predict what the stock market's going to have done during that period? Because if you can't, it's an unconscionable squandering of American resources and an unforgivable pandering to certain business interests. Again, I don't think you have to be, you know, an advanced researcher to figure this out. We've been talking with Andrew Vax. His new novel is Two Trains Running. Andrew, I want to talk to you a little bit about truth in fiction. Fiction is entertainment versus fiction with the power to change. If fiction doesn't entertain, regardless of what other power it's got, no one's going to feel it. Okay. You, you can put all the messages you want in a book. If nobody reads the book to the end, you know, it's the tree that falls in the forest, you know, does, does it make a sound? Uh, I think if you don't have the essential narrative force in a book, its contents are relatively meaningless in terms of changing anybody's mind, getting anybody to challenge, making anybody think. So job one has always got to be what you're calling to be entertaining. It's got to be there. And how do you balance that? The way I've done it, at least in my personal belief, and I'm not any kind of a writing coach, is that truth is in and of itself compelling. Truth is, in and of itself, properly presented, deeply engaging. And they're given a choice. Now, I, I grant you, there are some people who deliberately read for fantasy. And, you know, there's some people that want crime novels where the, you know, disaffected loner who, you know, got bounced off the police force because he wouldn't be corrupt is, you know, having his afternoon drink when this uh, absolutely gorgeous blonde walks in and says, I'm in a lot of trouble. There's people trying to kill me and I have no money. And the hero says, oh, I'll take that case. There's people that want to read that. And I'm not criticizing them in any way. Trying to put a message inside that book might be, that might be more than I'm capable of. I'm not <laughs> saying it can't be done. And it'd be maybe kind of cool if it did. But there's just a limit. There's just a limit. Uh, if people absolutely want suspension of disbelief, I'm not sure that's the place for what the French call literature engagé, you know, uh, work that's going to make you feel something to the point of action. And what kind of action do you expect your readers to take? What do you hope that somebody who reads Two Trains Running is I hope going they start, to I hope they start asking a lot of questions. I mean, I'm, I don't have a specific target for them because that's too controlling. That would be contrary to the whole theme of the book and why I wrote it. I want people to say, 
something's going on here, and I have the tools. I have the tools, me, myself, to find out more than I now know, and I'm going to make that investment. And what about the Burke books? Where well, that's different. I mean, Burke books, I really want people to get so angry that they act off whatever particular issue I'm raising. And certainly, if I were to sit down here now and write a Burke book, it would be about the incest loophole so that people, not just in California, because the incest loophole exists in many states across the country, would demand of their legislators, why haven't you closed this? That would be, to me, a perfect result. Now, do you write the Burke books based on a specific issue? When you approach each one, you say, this one I want to deal with this Absolutely. issue. Yeah, sure do. Now, you have a new Burke book coming out. How did you know that? I mean, it's true, uh, but how did you know that? Um, it was the in your publicity literature. My publicity literature? Yeah, I believe you. What your publisher said something about it. Maybe you did. I, if you got me, I mean, I haven't seen the literature. I mean, if it says that, I'd be quite surprised, but okay. All right. Well, tell us, what is the, what is the issue behind your new Burke book? Trafficking in humans. Where? In America? Oh, within, yes. Within, within America. our borders. Yes, within our borders. Not, not the okey-doke where, you know, all trafficking is being done from foreign countries. But yes, I mean, that's touched, too. But the whole issue of trafficking, and indeed the whole issue of prostitution is a victimless crime. It, it is the theme of the book. So, do you, I you ta- I take it that prostitution is a victimless crime. You don't you don't buy that argument at all. I am not saying that nobody's made a conscious, uncoerced choice to sell their body or to sell sex with them for money. I'm not saying that at all. But the idea that everybody involved in prostitution has in fact gone that route is just plain ludicrous. And the idea that there are no consequences, that these people are sex workers, you know, is indefensible. And, and I hope to make those points in far greater detail you know, when this book comes out. And how do you separate the two? How do you tell one from the other? It's not difficult as long as you're willing to individualize and not fantasize. There's people who want prostitution to all be these you know, perfectly configured females who've made this choice. In fact, they can suspend disbelief so much that they actually believe they have a relationship with somebody they're paying money for sex. Mm -hmm. But uh, the reality is something quite different. I do not mean, and I haven't morphed into Andrea Dworkin, right? I'm not saying every single (laughs) woman who, or man, who's chosen to sell him or herself was a sexually abused child playing out their old scripts. But the idea that prostitution doesn't have all kinds of consequences for society is just wrong. Well, what do you think those consequences are? It's, it's too long a discussion for me. To, I, I, I reject epigrams, and that's what I'd be talking in in the time we have left. I'd be throwing off catchphrases, and I can't. I'll say, wait for the book. Okay. Now, what else do you have in the pipeline? Oh, God. That's, uh, I have this new novel that I'm working on that apparently the publisher's already told people about. Uh, I have some short stories that I've promised. I have a couple of more nonfiction pieces that, again, I've promised. So if I can fulfill all those promises within the next year or two, I'll be, I'll be very happy. You know, there's a series of yours I wanted to ask about, the Underworld series? Underground. Underground series. Tell me a little bit about those. I, I couldn't quite get a bead on what they were, and it sounded pretty interesting what I could... They're about a, a world that's changed because it's a world that now lives underground because of the terror. And if you read long enough into the series, you realize the terror 
wasn't the nuclear holocaust or anything like that. It was the death of journalism. That, no, now, that's not what we usually consider terror. I, when, I, when, when you said terror, I was thinking, you know, Al-Qaeda bombings no, gone wild. No, no. Death of journalism was the final blow. What happened was child abuse ran amok. It was unchecked for too long. And as journalism stopped reporting and people stopped responding, the world became uninhabitable, which I can't say more without going to like really explicit detail about the book. But the series is set in that world. What made you write a series for a man who, who writes exclusively about the grittiest parts of reality? What made you write a series of speculative fiction? That's an odd choice for you, it seems. Uh, really, the same thing that made me do graphic novels. Somebody offered the opportunity. I mean, I would never have written a Batman book. If, yeah, I wanted to ask if, you about that Batman book. If they hadn't come to me and said, listen, you can use our character for your mission. So I said, sure. I would not pass up a chance to preach the particular gospel that I do in any pulpit that I'm offered. How, how did the graphic novel stuff come about? They, exactly they, as I described. They, they offered it to you, and you took the choice. Yep. Now, was this a Burke graphic novel? Or was no, it? no, no. It was a whole series I did called Hard Looks that ran for a number of years. And then I even did a Predator series, uh, actually a standalone one. It was broken up into several issues, but it was one giant comic, uh, you know, an episode of Predator. Now, wait a second. Is this the science yeah. fiction series? Yep. The science fiction? Now, how did you work your themes into a science You'd fiction. You'd have to read it. I mean, I, for me to describe something that took this much work and this long to play out, I mean, you just have to read it. You can still buy it. It's not, you know, not hard to find. It's called Predator Race War. I noticed in this new novel that, and this is a very minor thing, but I found it kind of interesting, classic car details. They're not classic cars. They're contemporary cars. So you're calling them classic cars because you're talking to me in 2005. Well, yes, so I 1959. Am. They weren't. There's no classic cars in there. Did you develop these just through sheer research? It seemed like, as well, I read them, it seemed like something that you might have a personal interest in. I, I was a, a hardcore drag racer in the late 50s. Oh. So there's no research involved. I mean, this is just memory. We've been speaking with Andrew Vax. His new novel is Two Trains Running. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me.